a Disaster, a podcast about disasters and the music they make us listen to. I'm Peter, and I'm still not here with my co-host, Lee. I'm Lee, and I'm still not here with my co-host, Peter. That's getting real old real fast. That was, that was <laughs> old about two months ago, and it's, it's still going. So that's, it. that's fun. Yeah. Plagues are fun. I like what they do. Yeah. It's, it's the best one I've ever been through. <laughs> also <Tell> only? <laughs> eh, why bring that up? Yeah, fair enough. Um, and you're joining us for a disaster, a major disaster. And before we get into it, I'm just going to do a little bit of housekeeping, like I always do. If you're new here, welcome. Hi. We recommend you go back and check out our podcast from the beginning, not because we think that we're awesome, but because sometimes we do callbacks. I mean, I think we're okay. I think we're, I think we're, I think we're right. Right. But every now and then we do callbacks to previous episodes, and there's a little bit of like a thread throughout, kind of like when you used to watch the X-Files. And like you had the monsters of the week, but there was always that overarching sort of thing going on. Yeah, Mister X would show up. Exactly. I think we got like th- we got like a thread sort of going through. Anyway, point is, hmm. we'll we'll do callbacks to previous episodes. You won't miss any inside jokes, but sometimes you'll get a fuller experience if you go back and listen to all of our episodes. So I encourage you doing that. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do is to tell a friend to listen to this podcast. Just spread the word, like a rash. Bad example: wildfire or plague. There we go. Plague. Or plague plague that spreads plague. like wildfire. <laughs> there we go. The next best thing you can do is subscribe if you aren't already and leave a rating or a review. I think Apple Podcasts is still the best place to do that to help us get noticed. But you know what? Anywhere helps. If you want to keep up with what we're doing on social medias at this disaster pod, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, we've got a website where you can find everything in one convenient place, www.thisdisasterpod.com. We also have a patreon.com slash this disaster pod where you can get a ton of bonus content. We've got micro disasters coming out every two weeks. We got uh, other sort of bonus episodes when there is something that doesn't fit into a main episode. A lot of times when we do these major disasters, we live stream them. So you can join our Discord and watch the live stream. Really just uh, world's your oyster if you join the Patreon. Mm. Oh, yeah. What's up, patrons? What, what what that helps us do is produce some more bonus content, like uh, maybe maybe some some mega disasters that are in the brewing right now. Oh, yep. mega. Yep. In the brewing? Brewing? Brewing. In the works? Or brewing. Again, in the hopper. In words. One last thing before we dive in. We're just going to do a little bit of listener feedback like we do every now and then. All right. So I was interacting on the social medias, uh, not not just the passive medias, but like the social ones where it's like a give and a take. Oh, not the antisocial. No, no, that's that's COVID-19. So funny. so anyway, I've been locked out of the gym for a while, as I imagine a lot of people were, and I've been using like these resistance bands to stay in shape. They're basically like these exercise bands. You can get them in various resistances and you can do similar kind of like, you can do workouts like with weights, but it's just sort of these elastic bands instead of weights, which and you can tie your big, big brother brand up with them if you're the Goonies. <laughs> Sorry. I never watched, I never watched the Goonies. Oh, for crying <laughs> Go on. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so I asked what other people have been doing, and we got a little bit of feedback. So uh, one person said that they're doing a New York 500K challenge, which I think is essentially running the equivalent of the length of New York, Whoa. sort of virtually. So that's yeah. uh, that's above and beyond. I think Holy I'd die about 5K into those 500K. <sighs> Did they say like how many K per day? Well, uh, or miles? No, if they were not necessarily American friends. No, yeah. they're just racking it up. Isn't that funny? I guess it is an American thing because it's New York State, but they call it a 500K. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm, it's catching mm-hmm. on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Slowly but surely. <laughs> yep. <laughs> In another hundred years. <laughs> Don't call me Shirley. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, my God. 
that reminds me i was on this uh i was reading this reddit thread today they were talking about what movies from the 80s totally hold up and one that came yeah. up was airplane uh, okay have you seen airplane uh it's been a long time probably was a kid last time i saw it i love that movie so anyway i asked uh how people are staying fit and i'm pretty sure i know who this one is again uh fitting this pizza in my mouth <laughs> that was uh that was nuclear norm again always appreciate his input uh, love it <laughs> someone else said home calisthenics rewarded with ipas oh nice push-ups and beers <laughs> have a straw in the beer and as you go down in the push-up take a sip <laughs> that's a good up. idea actually you know? that's a great idea every movement gets a reward Someone else, I think this was Craig from Canadian History X, said, rolling, oh, nice. running, and getting killed in Dark Souls. Okay. I could see that breaking a sweat. God knows I do when I play uh, Doom Eternal on Nightmare. Holy frig. Big time. I'm trying to work my mm -hmm. way through, and uh, we were talking about this before on Ultra Nightmare. Ugh, you're a crazy and man. Actually, it was it was stressful at first, but now it's getting to the zen place because you end up <laughs> having the, you have like the maps memorized. So right. you just kind of like... Just kind of do it, <laughs> you know? Just muscle memory. You could do a blindfolded pretty soon. Almost. Uh, and then the last one was Ring Fit for the Switch. And that's that's pretty awesome. That's like a, the Nintendo Switch has this uh, fitness game called Ring Fit, where like it's like a quest-based thing. You run around and you do exercises with this like Pilates ring resistance okay. thing. Okay. Oh, yeah. cool. It's pretty cool. Gary, Gary does that. It's pretty awesome. Nice. Cool. So it sounds like people are staying fit. That's good. Yeah. On to the disaster. People have been blocking and diverting water for millennia, it turns out. Oh, really? The earliest known dam was built about 3000 BC in Jordan in the Middle East. Damn. <laughs> Let's get that out of the way. Well, there's going to be a lot of that, so okay. get them ready. Get them ready. <laughs> okay. The, this original dam was what's known as a gravity dam, which relies mostly on the weight of the materials used to build the dam to keep the water okay. behind it. So basically, it's okay. just like you can, you can build up like a big mound of dirt or whatever, and what keeps the water in is gravity. And there's other types of dams that I'll talk about in a minute. Okay. That's one type, gravity. We're going beaver style here. So the one in Jordan that was built in 3000 BC was nine meters tall or 30 feet, one meter thick or three feet, and it spanned 50 meters or 160 feet. Okay. So damn, that's a good damn. dam. Generally, ancient dams were built to improve irrigation on farmland. Uh -huh. uh, they'd control the overflow and direct it onto waterways that would keep agricultural fields properly irrigated. Nice. Some dams from the ancient world actually still serve their purpose, such as the Dujiang Yan irrigation system in the Sichuan province of China, which was constructed around 250 oh, no BC. And okay. it's still intact. And used? I guess, technically. I mean, it still irrigates the, the farmland. So if they okay. still farm it, still using it. All right. So that's cool. That's good. Early dams are fairly primitive, if robust. I mean, that one's been around since 250 BC, so it's still yeah. standing. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. Although... Tell that to the Romans because they took the ball and really ran with it. So Romans, as you might know, were uh, they were doers. Yeah, their doing was so effective because of their planning and their engineering. I mean, if you think about it, structures throughout Europe have been standing for thousands of years since the Romans built them. Sure. So they kind of take a problem and run with it and make the solution even better. So where ancient dams were generally used to divert water for irrigation, Roman dams were usually used to create reservoirs in regions where water availability might be questionable due to like not frequent rain or drought. Right. So they were basically building dams for reservoirs, not just irrigating farmland. All right, okay, water supply. They brought their advanced masonry and concrete to the construction. They had an early version of what we would call concrete, uh -huh. which is why a lot of their structures were so robust. Okay. They also used various designs for dams. So they used gravity dams, like we talked about. They also used arch dams, which actually 
we still kind of see. So they are dams where they, they curve upstream as the water hits the dam. It kind of pushes against the dam to, if you, if you can picture like how the dam bows, yeah. the water pushes the dam and then it kind of pushes it in and the dam structure pushes out against usually like the cliff faces. Right, right, And that right. kind of reinforces the dam. Yeah, I can picture it. Yeah, and then on top of that, the water is kind of diverted out towards the sides of the cliff. And again, that uh-huh. kind of pushes in on the dam and just reinforces the whole structure, which is oh nice pretty cool i didn't realize that was by design yeah cool. right yeah i thought like oh it must be like somehow that's more efficient to build but it's actually yeah, right. a structural thing so that's cool hmm. and there's also buttress dams so that's where it's basically just a wall with a series of supports along the edge that hold it up right in my opinion the arch dam is the coolest yeah also arch dam kind of like arch vile arch vile like that, <laughs> like that demon in doom eternal like the demon in doom eternal this game ever we like doom eternal a little bit <laughs> And actually, eventually, these kinds of dams in Roman times, and then it would continue on, but they would evolve into dam bridges, which is good news for James Bond and Goldeneye. Because otherwise, what would he have bungee jumped off of to infiltrate the Soviet installation? I don't know. I didn't see that movie. Uh... You haven't seen Goldeneye? Well, you haven't seen Goonies. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> the dead heat. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> Dams continue to evolve and play critical roles in the Middle Ages to the point where cities would actually get their names after having dams near their borders. Right. So many sidebar about dam city names. The original name for Amsterdam was Amstelredam, which is a town built near a dam across the river Amstel, hence Amstelredam and eventually Amsterdam. Yeah. Same thing for Rotterdam, which was a dam across the river Rote or Rotte, I guess. Okay. So if you ever encounter a city whose name ends in dam, odds are it was built near a river that was dammed. Not dammed like by demons, but dammed <laughs> like it had, a, it had like a dam across it. Amsterdam is both. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Depends on the district, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> so the damming continued through the 19th and 20th centuries. Most interestingly for Lee and I, Lieutenant Colonel John By oversaw the construction of the Rideau Canal, which is a centerpiece in Ottawa. Uh-huh. And he built it through the 1820s and 30s, and it connects the Ottawa River to Lake Ontario. And I'm actually embarrassed to say that I didn't know that it covered 200 kilometers or 130 miles. Yeah. Goes to Kingston, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Something well, it goes, that, to, yeah. it goes to Lake Ontario. Yeah, through, I guess, through Kingston. Via Kingston. But that, yeah. that just to give it a, a, an idea of how far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I think the Colonel by, I mean, the, the foundation of Ottawa was based on that very water system like where they're sort of sending logs down the line to Quebec or yeah. something like that yeah yeah, yeah. That's pretty I think cool. isn't that part of the story like yeah right because they were I think Kingston was a prime candidate for a while because it was actually accessible by water but then Ottawa became accessible because of the Rideau Canal yeah exactly what you said basically oh yeah. you put a finer <laughs> point on it no well, I was just embarrassing for me because I live in the city and for me the Rideau Canal has just been the thing you skate on in the winter yeah but it turns out it's a major <laughs> major 200 kilometer long waterway so that's you that's find cool. that out when people not from here come to visit you and they ask about landmarks in the city like what <laughs> what's the significance of the, of the significance of the Rideau Canal um well you skate on it uh <laughs> Don't know. Yeah, beaver tails, I guess. Yeah. That's good. Again, for non-Canadians, that's not like, we don't catch beavers and eat their tails. <laughs> no. It's a pastry. That's It's super a delicious, delicious pastry that we eat. So he actually, so John By, when he was building the canal, used a series of arched stone dams to control the water during construction. We got a, we got a dam connection there. There you go. Arch dam. If you remember, also we mentioned dams a little bit in our famine in Egypt, Egypt episode, episode 12, because there were a few mm. attempts at damming the Nile. 
through the 20th century. Oh, right. Yeah. And then maybe the best known dam is the Hoover Dam, sure. which is an arch gravity dam completed in 1936. Interestingly, two years ahead of schedule across the Colorado River. Uh-huh. Bit about dams. That's a big dam. Yeah, that's a nice dam information there. <laughs> <laughs> and sidebar about dams. That's uh, an opening sidebar. Okay. Johnstown was settled under the much catchier name Schoenstatt in the 1800s mm. and was named after the Swiss-German founder Joseph Schantz. Eventually, his name was anglicized to Joseph Johns. I guess Schantz means Johns or he just picked sure. Johns. I don't know. Sure it does. And shortly thereafter, his name followed. So he became Joseph Johns and the town became Johnstown. Oh, okay. So for a long time, Johnstown was a main port along the Pennsylvania Main Line Canal, which is a network of canals connecting points throughout Pennsylvania. Okay. Its position as a key transfer point faded as the railroad took over in the mid-19th century. Mm. Luckily, Johnstown had more than just a convenient waterway position going for it. It was actually a super mineral-rich area. So being connected to the rest of the state by a much more efficient railroad allowed it to develop its mineral extraction and exportation, mm. mostly iron, steel, and coal. And then towards the end of the 19th century, Johnstown was actually the top steel producer in the U.S. All right. Interestingly, they were also the top barbed wire producer in the U.S. Okay. Hopefully that doesn't come back to haunt us. We'll see. It was also a nice place, at least if you ask the people that wrote for the Johnstown Tribune. So in one article, they described Johnstown by saying, Mm -hmm. quote, Our scenery is grand beyond description. The atmosphere cool and invigorating. Trout in the neighboring streams, large and numerous. Drives good, women beautiful and accomplished, men all gentlemen and scholars, hotels as good as the best. <laughs> well, they're a little biased. A eh? little I, bit, uh, yeah. I question that review. Also, note, uh, didn't say anything about the quality of their dams, though. Failed so, to mention the dams. Failed to mention the dams. Well, let's see where this goes. Wow. While the Pennsylvania mainline canal system was the predominant form of transportation and supply to Johnstown for a while, they built a dam to create a reservoir in order to ensure that the canals would have enough water to stay viable in the dry months. Hmm. So if, you know, you're relying on these canals and boats to transport all of these goods, then you got to make sure that they're actually wet. Yeah. So that you needed to build some kind of reservoir. That's good thinking. The dam they decided to build was a gravity dam. Right. They made a triangular pile of earth, slate and stone to keep water on one half. Uh And it was approximately uh, 22 kilometers or 14 miles east of Johnstown and about 120 meters or 400 feet above it. The dam, known as the South Fork Dam, took about 14 years to complete. Mm. Ended up being 20 meters tall, 280 meters wide, 3 meters thick at the top and 70 meters thick at the base. Okay. So the interesting thing about this dam is as they laid the last stone on the dam to supply water to the canal system... Uh Canals became obsolete and the railroad took over. Oh, good. Glad we have this dam now. You know what they probably said when they finish it? Ah, shucks. Ah, shoot. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So the integrity of the dam might have been questioned, especially when a storm in 1862 caused a section in the middle to collapse and the reservoir to overflow, but nobody really worried about it. Well, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, as far, you know, from what I know about dams in the last 10 or 15 minutes that you <laughs> educated me about. You're dams. an expert now, basically. Yeah. I'm an expert now, so I'm going to speak with authority. Uh, the gravity dam seems like the laziest option. Yeah. Like there's not a lot of science or architecture. Yeah, exactly. You're just throwing dirt in a pile until the water can't get over it. Yep. What could possibly go wrong? Oh, nothing. Nothing. Continue. Like I said, uh, nobody really questioned the integrity of the dam when part of it collapsed in 1862, following a particularly bad storm. Least of all, Henry Clay Frick. Frickin' Frick. (laughs) How many times have you heard that one? 
This is an episode full of dams and fricks. <laughs> <laughs> Henry Clay Frick was an Amer- American industrialist that took one look at the collapsed dam and thought, perfect. Mm. I shall build a fancy country club here. Uh, oh, <laughs> yep. weird. Because what else do you do when you see a... Enormous pile of dirt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, industrialist isn't a job title you hear much anymore. Industrialist. Yeah, that's kind of yeah. gone the way of the dodo. I'm a, I'm a man of industry. What do you do? <laughs> oh, industry. Oh, like, oh, which part of this guy's factory? Full of shit. First thing was first, though. So he needed to fix the unsightly hole in the dam. And a worker's a worker, right? So he didn't necessarily hire construction specialists. Instead, he just pulled out his contacts in railroad construction and was just like, hey, I got this hole. Can you uh, yeah. take care of that for me? Yeah, you got a strong back, don't you? Yeah. Good enough for me. Turns out you kind of need engineers for that kind of thing because essentially the repairs that fricked to the dam amounted to sticking a piece of chewing gum in a hole. <laughs> That'll do it. I mean... It will for a time. Well, sure. But, you know, originally <laughs> the dam was built, like I said, it had like dirt and stone and it was it was engineered a bit, right? Like okay. you had dirt on one side, stone on the other side. So it was a triangle and the stone kind of, it acted a little bit like a support for the rest of the dirt. So uh, there was I a see. little okay. bit of engineering that went into it. All right. I, I, I take back my comments. I might have. Well, no, because clearly one bad storm in 1862 already damaged it. So that's true. I stand by everything I said. <laughs> <laughs> what I like about you, Lee, is that you don't waffle. I think that's why we're friends. <laughs> that's probably it. <laughs> or maybe not. I don't know. Like I said, he basically bubblegum patched this dam. All right. Uh, in addition... The dam originally had two spillways and a culvert that allowed the artificial lake to be emptied when needed. So essentially, mm. a spillway is kind of like what it sounds. If the dam gets too high, it's like a way for the water to go around the edge of the dam in a controlled way. Uh, okay, okay. And dams have these systems, like in the more modern ones, you've probably seen sometimes like there's a dam and then you'll see like water coming out of the bottom yeah. and you'll be there's like... usually a chute. The, you know, yeah. The- yeah, exactly. It's like, shouldn't that water be on the other side of the dam? But that's usually a controlled lowering of the water level. Right. So the culvert in the bottom of the dam, again, when they built it, uh, there was like this culvert, which is like a tube through the bottom of the dam that could be controlled. So they could kind of like open it as they needed to to empty the dam to lower the water level if needed. Okay. That was crushed when that 1862 storm happened. A section Mm. of the dam kind of fell out, fell down through the water and then crushed the culvert shut. Oh, dear. So they didn't bother fixing that. Why would you need that, though? Why Why would you need a safety measure? Exactly. The other thing is, did I mention that, so he wanted to build a country club. Did I mention that it's also a fishing club? Didn't mention the fishing. It was a country and fishing club. So to fish, you need to have fish. They brought fish into what they were now calling Connemaw Lake, (laughs) right? And to keep them in, they installed nets across the main spillway at the top of the dam. So water could still spill out, but now there was a net in front of, there was like a little bridge over the spillway. And then underneath Uh that bridge, they put in nets. Water can get through fish. And possibly other things cannot. That's very, yes, that's very foresightful of you. (laughs) (laughs) Ain't my first rodeo. Anyway, let's see how this plays out. Yeah. Despite the patch job on the ominous hole, everything seemed to go fairly okay for the next decade or so. Uh Uh-huh. And the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club did pretty well. It counted among its members Henry Frick, obviously, who was the guy who founded it, Mm -hmm. uh, Andrew Carnegie, and Andrew Mellon. So Carnegie and Mellon probably sound familiar. They were also big deal industrialists and investors and holders oh. of wealth, essentially. Oh, men of industry, holders of wealth. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 
picture oh. picture top hats, monocles, and cigars, probably. That's exactly what I'm thinking about. <laughs> canes, throw a few canes in there. And like I mentioned, the reservoir, what was once a reservoir, was now Lake Kanama or Kanama Lake, which was <laughs> yeah. boasted to be the largest man-made lake in the U.S. and held in by the largest earth dam. Biggest equals best. Yeah, it's, yeah. They've got the biggest dams. They've got the best people. So far, so good. What could possibly go wrong? Huge. <laughs> On May 31st, 1889, it had been raining more or less constantly throughout the day, Okay, which I mentioned in the last episode that this disaster is going to have a little bit of stuff that maybe Chicago could have used. Uh-huh. The first thing, it's been raining for a couple of days in on May 31st, 1889. Chicago in 1871 is like, yeah, give me some of that, please. Yeah, exactly. Hasn't rained here for four months. What have you done for me lately? So again, this wasn't just a little rain. So Lake Connemaw rose about half a meter or two feet along the height of the dam as a result of the rain. Okay. And the South Fork Creek, which fed Lake Kanama, was ravaging trees and tearing branches and other debris off at about a 1.5 or f- meters or five feet above its normal level. Whoa. Not inconsiderable. This situation wasn't lost on Elias Unger, who was president of the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club, and he lived on a farm overlooking the club. Okay. So he woke up in the morning on May 31st, 1889, looked down at the dam, and essentially it looked like an infinity pool. <laughs> you know, like those pools yeah. where like you, you don't see the edge? And it just goes off into the horizon. Right? Celebrities' houses. Cool for a pool, not so cool for yeah. a dam that's supposed to keep the water in. No, I don't think they would have appreciated the aesthetic back then. <laughs> Elias remembered, as we're conveniently being reminded right now, that beyond and below the dam lay Johnstown and many settlements along the way. So he grabbed his hat and ran into the rain and grabbed whoever he could as he rushed to the dam to try and clear the spillways. Okay. Clear the spillways, you may be asking yourself. (laughs) Remember how the fishing and country club brought fish to Kanama Lake and then installed nets across the spillway to keep the fish in? Yes. Turns out, as you suspected, nets catch everything that nature throws at them and not just fish. <laughs> All the branches and debris that had been swallowed and pulled along by the South Fork River made their way through the lake and into the spillway nets, clogging them. Uh, 10 years worth, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, like gradually over the 10 years, but then during this rainfall where, <laughs> where the creek had overflown and was like oh, tearing right. stuff off of trees and pulling stuff down, now it's getting like a, a good additional chunk of debris. Yeah, it's like, you know what? Double it. Yeah. Double down. Double, triple, go to town. (laughs) So with these nets clogged, they clog the spillways, and with the spillways clogged, the water has nowhere to go but up and eventually over. Uh Aha. Again, if you're building a dam whose intention is to keep the water in, typically not what you want. No. It's what the kids call an epic failure (laughs) 10, 15 years ago. I was just going to say... I remember I was like TAing some biology lab uh-huh. and one of the one of the kids that I was kids, whatever, one of the students I was supervising showed me this new website they found on their Blackberry called like epicfail.com. <laughs> right. And that memory is like peak mid 2000s to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. 2005 max. So much. Epicfail.com right alongside there with like ebombsworld.com. Ebombsworld. Oh, shown man. to me on a blackberry back when they had like those little trackballs in the middle and like the yeah. keyboards yeah as elias and his crew tried desperately to unclog the spillway another group ran to the opposite side of the dam and tried to dig a channel essentially 
making another makeshift spillway to get the water <laughs> out using another route that wasn't Damn. over the dam, which seems like a little bit too little too late. But again, <laughs> like, uh, what are you doing? Grab a shovel. How big is this dam? <laughs> dig like your life depends on it. Well, it won't make much difference, but you know, try. <laughs> so during these efforts, John Park, who was an engineer that worked for the South Fork Club, though, uh, if he oversaw the chewing gum repairs, I don't know. <laughs> what his credentials are like. But anyway, he was an engineer that worked for the club. He arrived on the scene and initially he considered drilling a relief hole into the dam, but realized that it might just precipitate the dam's collapse. (laughs) And I think uh, every engineer and non-engineer's response to that was a duh. (laughs) Like literally a drill like this? Like when you, I don't know what kind of drill, but like he proposed just like, essentially like drilling, you know, that culvert that got crushed that they never fixed. Yeah. He essentially was like, oh, why don't we just, why don't we just do that? Why don't we drill a culvert? Like, yeah, that would have been a good idea when it wasn't overflowing. Yeah. Now it might sort of spider web and crumble into a million pieces. Exactly. (laughs) Instead, what Park ended up doing was riding to the town of South Fork to send a telegraph to Johnstown about the imminent danger. (laughs) Got the fuck out of there. But, yeah, well, he didn't go to the telegraph office himself, obviously. He sent someone to deliver the message. Oh, okay. So, not sure if, uh, let's say, the urgency was conveyed by him sending a messenger instead of going himself. Uh-huh. The person that he sent may have actually delivered the message, but the warning never got past the telegraph operator because this was like false alarm number 10. Everyone's always freaking out about the half-assed dam with the bubblegum patched hole. So the telegraph operator assumed that this would just be another false alarm and didn't pass the message along. (laughs) I'll add it to the list. Thanks. Yeah. Although, again, how long would it have taken to send a message? I don't know. How many messages (laughs) are going on here? I guess there's a lot, but still. I mean, maybe his finger was cramped. Who knows? You know, telegraph operators getting swamped by messages. That's going to come up again in that mega disaster that I mentioned. Oh, really? Yeah. Jeez. Except that one's at sea. Oh, I see. (laughs) (laughs) So to Park's credit, apparently he rode through the town of South Fork yelling to anyone in the street that they should flee to high ground. Mm -hmm. So he didn't do nothing. So maybe he he delegated the person to go to the telegraph (laughs) operator so that he could spend his own time running around yelling about the dam about to break. Fair enough. He even stopped at the Pennsylvania Railroad signal tower. And he asked the telegraph operator there to message Johnstown about the impending doom. Okay. So he yelled the message at her, turned and kept riding. And he didn't stick around long enough to hear her yell back that heavy rains and flooding in the, of the South Fork River had taken out telegraph lines leading to Johnstown. Oh. Guess even if that message wanted to get out, it wasn't going anywhere. A for effort. So by the time Park made it back to the dam, a crowd had gathered and everyone was staring at a notch that had formed near the center <laughs> of the dam. He right. told everyone to get the hell out of there. And they just so gather was, around the epicenter. Like, oh, no, away from it. here. Away, no, what are you yeah. doing? <laughs> but that's to be expected, I guess. That's just human nature at work. <laughs> what's what's that? <laughs> you said something bad's happening over there. Well, let's go. <laughs> Danger <laughs> is what's happening. <laughs> yeah. So they were staring at this notch. And this notch was slowly letting water out of Kanama Lake, which is typically, again, not what you want to see when you're looking at a dam designed <laughs> to keep water on the other side. In, yeah, mm. no good. So it's unclear whether this notch was near the patch job repair, but either way, it grew steadily in size until at just after 3 p.m. on May 31st, the South Fork Dam disintegrated. 
oh god like all of it i don't know if you remember me telling you how big it is but like 200 meters wide yeah i remember just gone just half yeah oh my god a scientific article published in 2016 estimated that Kanama Lake contained 14.5 million cubic meters, which is almost 4 billion gallons of water, just before the South Fork Dam ceased <clears throat> to exist. Holy yeah. moly. I mean, those are some big numbers. I tried to contextualize them. I'll see what I can do here. <laughs> the volume of Lake Michigan is about 5,000 cubic kilometers, so it's nowhere near Lake Michigan. Okay. Average swimming pool contains approximately 65 cubic meters, or 17,000 gallons. So this okay. is about 225,000 swimming pools. <laughs> That's still not really... I can picture it. <laughs> <laughs> In no. Latuya Bay, Mega Tsunami, Tragedy Tuesday, you remember? We yeah. recorded like a year ago. So that was episode five and a half. It was a tidal wave that ran up a hill. Check that one out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there, 30 million cubic meters of rock fell into Latuya Bay to cause the tsunami. Kanama Lake had about half that amount of water. Okay. Comparison I made in the Latuya Bay episode was to the volume of the Titanic. So the volume of the Titanic was approximately 400 cubic meters. Mm. When the South Fork Dam burst, 36 Titanics filled with water, which, I mean, it was, but we'll talk about that later. 36 (laughs) Titanics filled with water rushed into the countryside. Okay. Still hard to picture one Titanic. Now picture 36 of them filled with water rushing into the countryside. Yeah, I think it's coming together. Water thundered through the countryside, first reaching the town of South Fork. Luckily, South Fork was on relatively high ground, so most of the population was able to escape. Uh Still, over 30 houses were destroyed and four people killed. Yeah. Okay. I say killed, and this is, I'm going to establish a theme here. Hmm. Here's what's horrible about this kind of flood. Instead of climbing up due to like overflowing lakes, it's not flooding from the bottom up, it's flooding from a direction with force behind it. So it's essentially like a tsunami going over land. It's more or less rolling downhill, like picking up speed. It's in like a valley too. So it's just like steam rolling ahead. So when a flood like this destroys something or kills someone, it takes it with it. Right. It destroyed the town of South Fork and killed four people and took all of that with it. Okay. And this was just one town along the way. So So, let's just keep going. Yeah. Let's keep going. So for the next hour, water from Kanawha Lake barreled over the terrain between the former South Fork Dam and Johnstown, destroying anything in its path and taking it along for the ride. <laughs> kind of like a demonic Katamari Damacy. I was you just that like, game? I can't think of the name of that game, but <laughs> yeah, I know you can. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like Katamari Damacy, but probably none of the upbeat music and much darker. Yeah. But the same idea, like it's the water from the broken dam. And all the, everything from this town mixed in. Yep. Yeah. And so far, I've only gone through one town. Okay. Let's keep going. Reverend G.W. Brown was a pastor for the South Fork United Brethren Church, uh-huh. and he recounted his witnessing of the flood. Thus, <laughs> we use thus for the first time in this podcast. We're finally getting to thus. Quote, the dam melted away. Oh, how quickly. Hmm. Only a few moments were required to make an opening more than 300 feet, nearly 100 meters wide. And down to the bottom. Mm. I watched it until a wall that held back the waters was torn away and the entire lake began to move. And until finally, with a tremendous rush that made the hills quake, the vast body of water was poured out into the valley below. It was but an instant before the mighty torrent tossed into the air the iron bridge that spanned the South Fork. The iron bridge Reverend Brown is referring to is likely the Connemaw Viaduct. And this was a railroad bridge that crossed through the Connemaw Valley where this hell torrent was passing through. Okay. When the snowballing mass of water and debris hit the bridge, it stopped at first. 
because all of the debris and everything piled up against and underneath the bridge and just had the water sort of push up against the back of it. Makeshift dam. Exactly. Well, yeah, there you go. (laughs) Dam number two. (laughs) So eventually the bridge reached its limits and was obliterated and likely joined into the massive carnage tearing through the valley. So again, steel bridge or an iron bridge gets hit, stops the flow for a while, and then it gets torn apart and just taken along for the ride. It doesn't stay there. So this quick stop off at the viaduct had other consequences as well. So remember how the front wall of a tsunami is formed? This is a callback to episode... I think it's three. Our tsunami uh, terror episode. Yeah. So just as a quick recap. So waves like tsunamis, like giant waves travel quickly over deep water. But then when they reach shallow areas, they slow down. So as the leading edge of the wave slows, the rest of the fast moving wave behind it kind of piles up. And that creates that stereotypical like tsunami wall. Right. If you remember, the leading edge slows down. Everything else piles up against the yeah, back of it. Yeah. So it just sort of packs on. Exactly. So here we're not dealing with deep and shallow water, but the effect is similar. So the flood hit the bridge, the front edge slowed down. And then when the bridge finally gave way, we had a new wave front with renewed energy that was essentially the dam bursting all over again. (laughs) Oh God. Whereas if this bridge hadn't happened, maybe it would have slowed down a little bit on the way to Johnstown and become still devastating. But here it's essentially like the dam burst, built up a bunch of momentum and debris, hit this bridge and then Burst again Burst all over with again. new momentum. Probably more momentum than before. So Christ. now we have a tsunami of water and corpses, debris from houses, trains and train cars, steel <clears throat> and stone from bridges, every tree that was in the valley and anything that wasn't nailed down, and then <laughs> anything that was nailed down. Oh my God. All of this hurtling towards Johnstown. Oh shit. So at this point, the demon wave was flowing at approximately 12,000 cubic meters per second or 420,000 cubic feet per second. I don't know what that is. I just know it's terrifying. Okay. So looping back around to the Titanic, I did some math for you. Okay. Oh, thank you. This one, even if you don't know how big the Titanic was, just it was big. I'll say that for now. I'll tell you how big in the future. At 12,000 cubic meters per second, the Titanic would have been completely filled with water in 30 seconds. Oh, it's fast. Yeah, it's fast. Yeah. Titanic was big. It Titanic was, was a, a city boat. on the water. Yeah. <laughs> it had like 2,000 passengers. So picture the living space of 2,000 people. Paint, it's painting a picture. I appreciate 30 it. 30 seconds. Yeah. So remember Park, the young engineer that liked to delegate critical tasks? Uh, yep. The Pennsylvania Railway Telegraph operator he visited, whose name was Emma Ehrenfeld, mm. she later remembered thinking that the tsunami of terror was a result of one of the hillsides tearing itself loose. Mm. Also, she didn't know the word tsunami necessarily. That was me calling it the tsunami of terror. But <laughs> the other observers later described the advancing flood as looking like a mass of debris and death, any actual water being barely visible. So at this point, it's oh. a flood, but you can't really see the water so much as everything <laughs> in it. Oh my God. Uh-huh. It's gone from a soup to a stew. You had some corpses <laughs> and some buildings. You got a stew yeah. going. You got a, <laughs> you got a stew going. <laughs> Too soon? Uh, nah. We need one, at least one Arrested Development reference per episode. I actually, I actually have another one coming up built in. Oh, nice. So <laughs> we're, getting, we're getting two this time. Good. <laughs> so the next stop for the flood was East Connema. The East Connema rail yards were a busy spot for the Pennsylvania Railroad. Many passenger trains were stopped there full of passengers ready to continue on their journeys. Oh, good. One of these was the day express to New York was just waiting to be cleared to head out when news of the apocalypse reached <laughs> East Connema. <laughs> Charles Ridgewood grabbed his wife, Edith, who he married like a few hours before getting on this train oh, okay. and immediately began his escape from the train car. 
In his words, he saw, quote, a seething, turbulent wall of water whose crests seemed mountain high, filling the entire valley and carrying everything before it. <laughs> this is actually pretty awesome. Charles and Edith managed to clamber up on top of the rail car just as it was being filled with water. Uh-huh. But it didn't do them a ton of good because it, right as they got to the top, they were just swept away by the wave. Right. Luckily, another group of survivors happened to be floating past on a rooftop. And they managed to grab Charles and Edith. And that's why we have a quote from Charles. I was going to say, it's not his ghost. So he got out somehow. Here's the thing, though. So they got onto this roof to safety. Yeah. But their story's not quite over yet. Mm. Remember how I mentioned that Johnstown was like the foremost supplier of barbed wire? Yes, you did mention that. I thought it was weird that you mentioned that. Charles and Edith floated along with their party of survivors on a roof. They realized that they were headed straight towards a barbed wire factory. (laughs) Oh, why couldn't it be the pillow factory? (laughs) You read my mind. (laughs) That's my next note. I'm going to assume the phrase, you got to be fucking kidding me, was not around back then, but... Whatever the equivalent. It might have been invented at this point in history. (laughs) And in my notes, you know how I said I have another uh, Arrested Development built-in reference? Yes. This was Charles Ridgewood saying, oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever do you mean, dear? (laughs) So the building may have been filled with barbed wire, but at Uh, least its furnaces were also exploding and lighting everything on fire. (laughs) So essentially, (laughs) they were rescued by this roof only to barrel towards a barbed wire factory on fire. Right. A shrapnel factory. Charles and Edith did manage to jump from the roof and grab onto a piece of driftwood floating by. Okay. If you want to picture this like a movie, they leapt from the roof at the last second just as the roof crashes into the barbed wire factory, freeing about a hundred tons of wire, which added itself to the massive destruction and helped tear everything in the flood's path apart. (laughs) It's a fucking like a lawnmower. (laughs) Yeah. Basically, oh. like you already had this deadly mass of debris and now you've got barbed yeah. wire. On uh, the let's throw some razor blades in there too. Why not? <laughs> uh, cool beans. Good news is Charles and Edith were eventually pulled to shore, so they made it out. Well, they damn well better. They're friggin' like Indiana Jones and John McClane all rolled into <laughs> yeah. one. I think these actually expired those characters. So <laughs> maybe. maybe. Two things. They invented the phrase, you gotta be fucking kidding me. Mm-hmm. And they were in the inspiration for every action hero that came after this. Exactly. Next stop, Woodvale. <laughs> Next stop, Woodvale. <laughs> Sorry. God. There's not much to say about Woodvale, really, but that's in a lot of ways kind of more horrific because let's just, I'll just, I'll just put it this way. I just, I'll throw it away. Every structure was destroyed and approximately uh, 300 people were brought along for the hell ride along the demon wave. So one second, Woodvale, and the next, yep. not. Bye. A memory. Exactly. Okay. This was all on the way to Johnstown. Okay. When the flood finally got to Johnstown, it was at its most violent. It's no longer, quote unquote, just a swell of water. Uh-huh. Now it was mostly a mass of debris, barbed wire, burning buildings, and death. That is somehow mobile. Perhaps one of the first casualties or one of the first we have a record of was John Fenn. Yeah. He was working under the assumption that this would be yet another run-of-the-mill Johnstown flood (laughs) until he saw the thundering wave rolling down into town. Okay. He tried to run home to his pregnant wife and seven children, but he was swept away and lost. Oh, God. His story gets worse, though. John's pregnant wife was trapped inside their home with their seven children as water poured in up to the ceiling. Uh, And before she knew what happened, she was surrounded by the bodies of her seven children. Oh, Jesus Christ. 
She did manage to get to safety, but when she was finally saved, she told her rescuers, quote, what have I to live for? Which, fair enough. I agree. But at least she had her daughter who was born a few weeks later. Really? And then died shortly after. No. fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) You prick. Yeah. So Uh, that, that's, that, that's a nice little, uh. Thought I'd throw that one in there. Yeah, You're thanks. Welcome. That's that's it's going to be a good sleep tonight. Thanks. On a lighter note, Gertrude Slattery, who was six years old, found herself riding out the wave on an old mattress. <laughs> so roofs seemed to be the place to weather the flood because she saw one filled with survivors floating towards her. Mm. And then Maxwell McEachern, one of the men on the roof, struggled to break free from the crowd holding him back so that he could dive into the water and swim out to Gertrude. So kind of a badass. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. See how this goes. A little bit. Like everyone on this roof is trying to hold him back. And he was right. like, no, I'm doing this, which is actually interesting. It called sort of, I'm, I'm going back and I'm finishing a book that I mentioned before called Deep Survival by Lawrence Gonzalez. And he talks about this phenomenon known as rescue fever. Oh, okay. So I guess oftentimes when people are faced with desperate situations and they perceive someone else's imminent death, they'll kind of throw themselves into a hopeless danger without any thought about their own well-being to try and save that person. Hmm just like this weird sort of psychological tick where like you think the instinct might be self-preservation but a lot of times it goes the other way yeah right the example he gives in the book is there was a man in new jersey who dove into the hudson river to swim to the site of the 9-11 attacks to help okay but obviously like you're not gonna swim across the hudson eventually he was rescued by the coast guard but it's that kind of thing (laughs) yeah what i'll make it yeah like if you see this person who's like in peril i think a lot of times it happens if you see someone you know in danger you kind of like flips a switch jump yeah, it's 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 almost the way he describes it is it's subconscious. So like you think now like well, you know, self-preservation is going to be the leading impulse, but right. in the moment you're like, no, I got to go save this person. So, yeah. Good news, Lee, if we're ever in danger, probably going to uh, kill myself trying to save you. Well, likewise, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> apparently. You like to like think if you ask so. me, if you ask me now, I'm just going I'm just going to leave you, but in the moment, I'm going to save you. Okay. Probably, probably yeah. I will. I mean, I would. <laughs> That's like the most reliable thing that a person can say. Well, if that happened, yeah. I would do this. Oh, would you? Well, yeah. That's good enough for me. Right. <laughs> I was about to like start giving an example. Like, you know, if aliens showed up, I would save you. Trying to come up with something unlikely. <laughs> but given the way 2020 is going, I don't want to say anything because it's going to happen. Yeah, true. Let me make something up. Uh, if we're overrun by killer hornets. Oh, damn it. What did you do? <laughs> So eventually, Maxwell broke free and he managed to make it to Gertrude. Okay. And he rode the mattress with her until coming across another group along the shore and threw her to safety, <laughs> which is awesome. Yes. Some accounts have him throwing her like up to 15 or 20 feet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's like how just cycled through the fifth and sixth telling. Yeah. yeah. It's <laughs> it's cool enough that you threw her to safety. You don't have to inflate how far you threw her. Exactly. You're already on a mattress on top of a wave of death. So he threw her to safety and then eventually he was saved himself further downstream, down flood, down flood. <laughs> down he flood. was saved further down flood. Okay. You have stories of people surviving this flood in various ways, like huddling in attics above the waterline. Praying that the building doesn't collapse. Uh-huh. Uh, you have so many instances of one family member surviving as they watch the rest of their family disappear <laughs> in massive water debris and corpses. It's not, it's basically a crapshoot. Yeah. The sentiment of anyone faced with the wave of destruction is summed up in what Horace Rose told his son. Hmm. Horace, also, a name you don't hear that much anymore. Not so much. I'm kind of sad about that. So, in the face of the wall of terror, Horace's son asked, Can't we escape? To which Horace replied, No. This means death to us all. Thanks, Pops. I mean, 
we have that quote. So amazingly, Horace and his son survived, but it just illustrates the complete helplessness everyone felt, rightly so, in the face of such a gargantuan natural force, right? Well, you you don't want to give false hope to a child. I think we talked about this actually in the tsunami episode where a lot of these like natural disasters, you go from being like a living, breathing person to an object that physics is going to act on. And... (laughs) Just hold on and hope you come out the other end. Right. It's, there's nothing else you can do, right? And that's really it. I was being sarcastic, by the way. You don't tell a kid that. You go the opposite no, way. No, like, yeah, oh, right. we'll be yeah. fine. Don't worry, son. We'll be fine. Even if the yeah. you're inside the lion's mouth. Like, yeah, it'll right. be all right. Exactly. <laughs> we got this. We you got freaking this. ghoul. <laughs> As the water leveled Johnstown, some people stuck to the trope that we've talked about a few times, like in the Great Fire of London, episode three, and the Chicago Fire, episode 30, of my stuff. <laughs> for example the musante family was seen floating by on a barn door stuffing all of their belongings into what they hoped was a waterproof chest uh-huh. right up until the moment the door flipped over and they were never seen again oh, for f- well you died with your stuff my stuff <laughs> so just as violently as it arrived the flood ended but the carnage lasted long after the roar of the wave mm. a bridge near johnstown had to be destroyed using dynamite because it had been converted into a kind of gruesome dam by all the debris that piled up against it and under it, uh-huh. mostly like trees, the remains of houses and bodies. People, okay. Lots of bodies. Yeah. Speaking of bodies, all told, approximately 2,200 people were killed in the flood. Whoa. That's quite a bit. Yeah. And an additional 1,000 were swept away and unaccounted for. So, dead. 3,000 people. 3,000 people killed by this dam breach. Yeah. It's not what you picture in like sort of these rural city like little towns yeah well i guess this the towns along the way were fairly rural but johnstown was kind of a big deal okay it was an up-and-comer even after that canal system it was still a hub for the railroad and it was mineral rich and i mean i right the barbed wire production was kind of important (laughs) (laughs) so it was important in murdering them all interestingly the rescue efforts following the johnstown flood were one of the first missions for the newly formed red cross oh just before we wrap up quick sidebar about the american red cross so the international red cross movement was founded in 1863 and it was a humanitarian movement whose mission is to protect human life and health Hmm. and they were heavily involved in the franco-prussian war in 1870 world war one in 1914 and world war ii in 1939 and pretty much every armed conflict thereafter yeah the american red cross was formed in 1881 so like eight years before this, hmm. by Clara Barton, who was a Civil War nurse, and she ended up being the first president of the American Red Cross. Kind of like the international movement, the American Red Cross was concerned primarily with emergency assistance and disaster relief. Yeah. Now it's known for blood services and training for medical responses and still disaster services. Most notably, they were involved in World War One, hmm. initially as sort of a neutral provider of this kind of disaster relief and care for people on both the Allied and Central Powers. Right. But eventually the U.S. joined on the side of the Allied Powers and then they kind of cut the Central Powers off. Uh-huh. But I thought it was kind of interesting that they started off being neutral. Yeah, so, that is. You know, they, they'd go in and they'd help, you know, French soldiers and then they'd turn around and help, you know, German soldiers. So it's kind of neat. Um, That's fine, I think. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, once yeah. you're, I mean, you're kind of out of the battle at that point, more or less. Yeah, but I guess... It was the American Red Cross at that point. So once the Americans joined and picked the side, yeah. 
<laughs> they're not going to let that you go. You can't really help the enemy anymore. No. Nah. <laughs> they also provided medical assistance during the Russian Revolution, the one with a capital R, like we talked about in the Tunguska explosion, episode 26. Oh, yeah. But then before, before any of those actually happened, the American Red Cross came to the aid of Johnstown in 1889. Okay. And they weren't alone. So much like the aftermath in the Chicago fire, which we talked about last episode, support poured out of the country. So a giant 20-car-long train filled with relief left Pittsburgh for Johnstown only a few hours after they heard about the flood, mm-hmm. and they was carrying food and clothing and blankets. Also, undertakers and embalming fluid. Oh, wow. Which is kind of morbid, but it kind of made me think about, I mean, obviously, believe what you want to believe, and I'm not criticizing it at all, but I thought, like... Wh- what are our thoughts about the sanctity of the human body after death? Is that too deep a topic to talk about? It just it's it's funny that you have this force of nature come through that turns all these people regardless of what they were into just debris essentially. Right. Yeah. But now we're coming in and we're going to preserve them and try to give them a burial. It's just it's just interesting. I guess I'm just thinking in general about, you know, traditions around the human body. We started on that in the first episode, Plague of Athens, remember? Yeah, right. Oh, right, right. Because they were just piling them up. Essentially, it's like, you know, the the body is sacred until everyone's fucked and then you just pile it up. Yeah. (laughs) It's sacred until it becomes more than an inconvenience. It becomes a hazard, I guess. I mean, who knows? It it might maybe have been something like small modicum of comfort for whoever was left. Yeah. You know, but um, who's to say? Yeah, it was just it was just an interesting detail. I thought it made me think about that. Yeah, I'm fine with. It. I mean, when I die, throw me in a ditch. I don't care. I suppose if we want to get philosophical about it, it depends on where you land on the whole mind brain division. How much of us is our body? How much is something <laughs> that else? That is a whole other podcast. Yeah, and a whole yeah, other okay. side <laughs> of the ex- existential dread. I think. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Maybe we'll get. We need nuclear norm for those episodes. So maybe. Yeah, we'll maybe. Yeah. The whole gang should be involved. So one thing that I actually didn't get around to mentioning during the Chicago Fire episode, mm. prisoners here baked about a thousand loaves of bread to send to Johnstown. Okay. But it makes it sound like their initiative. Like <coughs> prisoners decided to ba- to bake a thousand loaves of bread. Oh, they all got hearts of gold. Right. Like in the, in the Chicago Fire I said had like prisoners raised $600 and sent it to Chicago. Oh, okay. Did the did the prisoners raise the money or were they made to raise the money? <laughs> made to raise it. Is it like saying prisoners made license plates? It's not like they're going to license plate summer camp. That was nice of them. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> so made, anyway, yeah. point is the country rallied behind Johnstown. Right. It took Johnstown a little bit longer than Chicago to get back on its feet. But still, by July 1st, 1889, one month after the devastation, the first store reopened its doors on Main Street and Johnstown was back up and running. A month, you say? A month. That's pretty damn good. Especially given the devastation. I'll post some pictures on our social media, but it's total. This town is gone. Okay. And especially the towns along the way. There's one artist's rendering as well that maybe I'll post. It is like this terrifying mix of water and debris (laughs) that is on fire being carried (laughs) through this valley with barbed wire on the front. Like it's it's ridiculous. Demons snarling inside of it. But anyway, that's the story of the Johnstown flood and the dam that maybe should have been patched with more than just bubblegum. Hindsight being 2020. Yeah. Okay. So you got music for that? Yes, I got music for that. Sweet. Let's hear it. Okay. So the band I picked is called Boredoms. Oh. And they're pretty, pretty interesting band Um, from Osaka, Japan. They've been around since the 80s, I guess. 
and uh, they are really, really strange. You could like you could call their music experimental or avant-garde or maybe noise rock or mm-hmm. whatever, but it's it's really okay. weird, ridiculous, nonsensical. And you could say it's really fun and interesting, or someone else might say, "Are you kidding me? That's not music. That's garbage." <laughs> They're not for everyone, is what I'm trying to say. Fair enough. So anyway, yeah. disc- disclaimer over. Uh, the song I yeah. picked is called Dom's Bore. Okay. It's the first song off their 1993 album, Wow 2. It's got this sort of heavy intro that I was kind of thinking, it's not not work, but it sort of works with the story you told. The first you have this torrential rain, so that mm-hmm. works perfectly for the intro. It's just sort of these like tremolo like chords, like so there's the rain, yeah. and there's this lull. Mm-hmm. Where things are kind of weird and stuff. And then the dam breaks and you just have this deluge of... <laughs> awesome. And after that, it's these crazy rhythms and just swelling. Like, it literally sounds like being swept out to sea or swept up in the flood. Like, you don't know if you're going up or down. You're just caught in this crazy riptide. And, man, yeah. I couldn't think of a more appropriate uh, soundtrack. There you go. Awesome. So for me... Yes. I I cheated a little bit, uh-huh. but I think you've done this before too. Where I'm, I'm going to reuse a band. Yeah, I've done that. Sometimes, sometimes I try to pick songs where it's like, oh, I really got to pick something new, but one gets stuck in my head. Yeah, and this one's been stuck in my head virtually the whole time I was doing the research. Uh-huh. So the band is again Deaf Heaven. Yeah. So they're a black metal shoegaze band from San Francisco. I talked about them before. They're super cool. Check out everything they've ever done. Yeah. Except really I got good. mixed feelings about the latest album, but that's that's a me problem. <laughs> the album, this one's off New Bermuda, which came out in 2015. Right. And it's the first track brought to the water. Oh, yeah. In large part because it starts kind of similar reasons to you. It starts kind of dark, ominous, almost foreshadowing. Yep. Like it's got those church bells. Yeah. Very kind of pastoral. like. Yeah. The kind of music you would listen to in anticipation of a torrential downpour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then like in Deaf Heaven style, it hits you with like the wall of sound and the blast beats and just like this torrential, that's like the, the dam essentially evaporating yeah. and this wall of water coming out. And then it just continues until it essentially spends itself. And then you end up at the end of the song where you have this sort of melancholy melodic outro, yeah. which is kind of their characteristic, but it's just, that's basically people surveying their ruined town mm-hmm. where once mm-hmm. there was a town now there's just a pile of corpses and debris yeah, yeah. That, so that, that came to mind couldn't get it out of my head so that's the recommendation that I'm going with for, yeah. for this disaster there's a reason it, yeah. it's, it's a good fit it's in there it's in there yeah. thanks for joining us I hope you enjoyed that disaster if you liked what you heard then the best thing you can do to help us out is to grab a friend and tell them to listen grab them and then hit flood them with your <laughs> words that are this listen to this is a disaster that's right that was a labored try to try to shoehorn in the disaster into that every time anyway (laughs) the next best thing you can do if you aren't already subscribe that's super helpful leaving a rating and review on apple podcast helps more people find the podcast which makes the party that much more fun yeah. Make it. Let's make it into one of those parties where, like, your parents go out of town and you invite like a couple friends, <laughs> and then they invite a couple friends, and before you know it, they're like smashing furniture right. and leaving like husks of of like cracked nuts all over the place. It starts looking <laughs> like one of those saloons where there's peanut husks on the ground. <laughs> what the hell? And there's like a spittoon. Someone and brought an elephant. What kind of parties did you go to? <laughs> Somebody uh, brought an elephant. <laughs> Hecalaya Heck, brought his elephant. 
<laughs> That's yeah, a callback. Classic heckling. Yeah, right. Tragi- Tragedy Tuesday. Hartford Circus Fire. Listen to that one. <laughs> How do you remember that guy's name? Well, Hecalaya. Exactly. How do you forget a name like Hecalaya? <laughs> Gary doesn't know this yet, but our next son is going to be named Hecalaya. So nice. If it if and Let when know how that they're goes. going to be named Hecalaya. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to keep up with what we're doing on social medias at this disaster pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, you can also find everything in one convenient place on our website, www.thisdisasterpod.com. If you want to keep up with us on patreon.com slash this disaster pod, then you'll get access to a bunch of bonus content that comes out every two weeks. Every now and then we have these bigger bonus episodes full of information that typically doesn't fit into some of the uh, small into some of our major disasters so it'll kind of spill over and then we'll uh we'll make a bonus episode out of that and i think that's pretty much all i had to say for today cool you got anything to add um i think from what i hear this is not gonna be funny it's gonna be sincere okay so i'm sorry about that but Depending on when this comes out. Well, today there was a, a protest in Ottawa in support of the, the Black Lives Matter movement. And from what I hear, I mean, I think it went really well. Mm-hmm. So I just want to, I might be eating my words. I mean, maybe because the day's not over yet. I don't know. But I hear it went well. So if that's the case, then congrats, Ottawa. You, you've done it. You've done us proud. Thanks. Thanks, Ottawa. Yeah. Standing behind a worthwhile cause. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Lee. And thanks for joining us. And see, oh, no, wait. Oh. Next time. Next time. Next time on This is a Disaster. We'll be revisiting our nerdy pasts to talk about a video game that just couldn't. Yeah. So we'll see you in our next major disaster. Yeah, bye. bye.